brave people to see Let's put them on There's all sorts of shapes That I bet you can make When you had to escape Say the word Well I know that getting you alone Isn't easy to do With the exception of you I dislike everyone in the room And I don't wanna lie But I don't wanna tell you the truth Get the sense that you're on the move And you'll probably be leaving soon So I'm telling you Okay, so welcome. Good morning. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Nathan, and with us today is Tor Nos. Nos? And uh, Knos. Okay, yeah, I got it now. Okay, good, good. Um, <clears throat> so he's a filmmaker based in Brooklyn. So why don't we talk a little bit about movies and uh, influential movies? Well, first of all, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Vijay. Glad, glad to be here. Good, good. Thank you. And uh, so we're going to talk about movies and the power of movies in our society and uh, for each of us individually. So why don't we start off with kind of uh, the influential movies in your life and what were the first, do you remember the first movie you ever saw? Or? You know, I uh, I remember the, sort of the first couple movies that, that had an in- influence on me and I think um, I was, gosh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years old. I was down in uh, Florida with my father and he took me to a, a series of movies over the summer because we were down with my grandmother and uh, funny enough, I remember seeing Willow. It was the summer of Willow, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh-huh. um, Dead Poets Society. 
And it was the first time that I remember going to the cinema. I remember during Dead Poets Society actually crying as a little, you know, nine-year-old boy. And, um, you know, I think from that moment, it was, it was, I sort of understood at least abstractly where I kind of, uh, you know, where, where I wanted to, to be later in life and in making films and things like that. So I would say that was first, first memories of, uh, of cinema, the actually the very first, uh, like frame of film that I remember is maybe five years old. And I was, uh, my babysitter was watching the shining of course, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I remember sneaking around the corner and seeing a frame on the television of the little twins at the end of the alley and just being absolutely <laughs> terrified. And there was no, it was just them in the alley or in the in the hallway. But uh, and then she chased me away. And, and that image has really has stuck with me. And uh, as a big Kubrick fan, as, as most of us are, it was kind of a, a, a fun way to have a your introduction to uh, to film. Yeah, that, I had a similar experience where at a birthday party uh, at a young age, someone was playing Ghostbusters. And uh, the um, I was kind of in and out of the movie. I was kind of watching a little bit of it and, and leaving and such. And because it was a kind of a party environment, but they had the movie playing. And the, the Zool moment, I think, or the moment where, yep. you know, Dana becomes Zool, uh, I was like, that really had an impression on me because I was just sitting in that moment. I was like, oh, my God, this is quite disturbing and scary. And, you know, and, and the power that it has to um, kind of terrorize youth, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's such a special time, I feel like, in sort of your movie going experience because it's it's your your first introduction to these images. And there's these movies that as a teenager, as a, you know, as a young adult that that are experienced in a way that I feel like now as a as a man in my 30s it uh i just i can't experience it that way anymore so no i look back sort of very fondly as a as a cinephile at, at some of those movies that that have stuck with me over the years uh starting of course with with the shining and, yeah. and moving on through through high school you know i remember when i i really started exploring cinema as a as an art form and seeing lawrence of arabia for the first mm. time and i think that was a movie that in terms of understanding the the scope the, the scale of what cinema can be that that very famous match cut of peter o'toole when he snaps his fingers or i'm sorry when he blows out the match and then you're in the desert and it's that cinema scope oh uh, yeah expansiveness it was so it was so amazing and you know i grew up outside of atlanta georgia and so film was something that i could go to the theater and see and experience but the idea of actually working in it and you know so that was when I started toying with the idea of, well, geez, maybe I can actually make films too and, and exploring where to go. And of course, L.A. was at the top of the list. So, you know, movies like like Lawrence of Arabia, Do the Right Thing. I remember seeing as a you know freshman in high school. And again, it's that idea of um, seeing movies that were outside of my wheelhouse and what was playing at the cinema at the time. And I remember watching Do the Right Thing and the characters and the, and the story was was very new and challenging and, and, and foreign to me and, and a movie that had a big influence on me. Yeah, yeah. I think definitely in the, uh, the kind of diversifying into like different experiences, different human experiences and understanding where people are coming from, having building an empathy for like different, different, totally different foreign experiences and such. And that's something that's very much key is building empathy. I think in cinema, you know, being able to understand, uh, I remember some of the, uh, pivotal moments in my own um, experience later on in college and such. Boys Don't Cry was a big movie for me mm -hmm. that helped me 
you know, kind of really, I mean, transgender issues and such had not really taken the kind of momentum that uh, it has today when Boys Don't Cry first came out. Um, But when I watched it, I really began to understand, I think a little bit more about uh, transgender identity and and then kind of the violence that surrounds you know the ex, you know the, the difficulty of people accepting that absolutely and you know that was something that was very emotional for me and very um very touching yeah very emotional and very yeah and well, you know i mean it was the same for me with uh you know i mentioned do the right thing and and the first time seeing it and the the ending when mookie throws the the garbage can through sal's pizzeria i remember watching that as a you know 13 year old boy and just not understanding, like, why did he do that? Why did he do that? And it was so, it was such a challenge and something that I've carried with me, you know, growing up and to this day. And it's just such a, a testament to the power of Spike Lee's filmmaking. And, and it was that kind of direct, I think, challenge to the audience of uh, saying, you know, this is a world that, that you don't understand. And mm-hmm. there are, are things that, you might have a hard time connecting the dots and and it was it was a really powerful moment for me and um yeah exactly kind of what you're saying yeah and also how cinema can subvert the narrative the prevalent narrative like for example last temptation of christ i watched after spending eight years in catholic school and getting a different perspective on jesus story at the end of right before i went into um high school i watched that and it was a very different interpretation to the one that I had been exposed to in, in Catholic school. And um, uh, being able to kind of experience a different look at Jesus's life was very moving for me. That's all. Then I literally was like crying tears by the end of the movie, yeah. you know, kind of understanding that there was a whole nother way of looking at Judas and, and uh, Jesus's story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so talk, let's talk a little bit about your journey um, a little bit more about your journey. You were talking a little bit about uh, the thesis or some phrase you said. I want to let you say that. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I don't make uh, make stories, not deals. I think was the oh, right, yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah. No, it's um you know growing up, like I mentioned, outside of Atlanta, I was always very passionate about filmmaking, but at the same time, uh, the idea of making a living off of telling stories was something that. I think both uh, myself and my family had a hard time wrapping uh, wrapping our heads around. So when I decided to go to USC for for school, I ended up studying business and cinema with the intent of working uh, behind the camera on the on the business side. And mm. graduated and worked at a talent agency and really learned the business and how all the pieces fit together in Hollywood. And really kind of tried to to uh, squelch the 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 storyteller in me because I figured you know this is a this is a good career choice it's safe mm. and and I remember actually there was this, this moment I was at this this talent agency ICM and it was across the street at the time from the Academy Building and they had all these amazing screenings and that particular night they had just restored a print of Tilly's Punctured Romance which was the first feature length comedy came out in 1913. And I was so excited to see it. Chaplin is in it in a small little supporting role. And I sent out an all-assistant email to everybody in the motion picture group, you know, hundreds of employees saying, "What an, you want an opportunity? Come meet me after work. We'll walk over there. And 
seven o'clock rolls around and it's just, you know, crickets, Ugh. nobody at all. And I thought, geez, like maybe people don't share the same passion about <laughs> filmmaking than I do. And, um, and I think that was sort of the, the first moment of a, uh, a career change for me and ultimately one that led me uh, to New York and uh, in pursuit of, of not just producing movies, but, but writing and directing. Good, good. And if you talk a little bit more about kind of what, uh, what is the, what are, what do you say is the artistic concerns or, um, you know, the artistic, the questions that maybe you grapple with in, in, in your writing mm-hmm. um, and the kind of what, what you're hoping your artistic vision, because we were talking a little bit about, Kubrick and sure. it's amazing how he also was an inspiration for me because I think the idea that he, every few years he produced this magnum opus about uh, he'd delve into a specific topic, he'd do a lot of research, yep. and he'd kind of explore one terrain in kind of a thesis like almost like very methodical sure. and and this kind of thing and and he was very interesting and a lot of these filmmakers they tend to have like questions or um, you know pressing concerns or or you know things that drive them. So what do you think was it? What would you say is a question well, that really drives you? Yeah. Speak, speaking of Kubrick uh, yeah. and, and you know, talking about films that influenced me, mm-hmm. uh, just jumping back for a second. Yeah. The, uh, I remember on VHS, I remember copying Dr. Strangelove uh, and watching it. It was we had a, a media department in our high school, tape to tape. And I remember watching Dr. Strangelove and I must have watched that movie 10 20 times it was just so what you know what i loved about strange love was you could tell you were in the hands of a, a brilliant filmmaker but it was also so entertaining yeah such a fun challenging movie um so so yeah so to, no, to get back to your question um you know that's i don't know if uh if i have an answer for that i mean I, I think I'm I'm trying to achieve what I imagine most filmmakers are, are aiming for, which is truth on screen. Yeah. Um, but that can look, you know, that that can take many different forms. And you look at filmmakers like the Coen Brothers or Kubrick, uh, and um, you know they're they're all they're all approaching it from from different ways. I think for me, more than anything, it's it's trying to tell a story that. Uh, feels honest to the characters yeah um and uh it's a really challenging challenging thing to do yeah i mean for someone who's like grown up reading fiction and 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 understanding and learning about stories it's strange that sometimes i go through some periods where i'm like you know i go through some phases where i'm like oh you know fiction is about other people and strange characters in some world parallel world you know what does it have to do with me as the listener it's just some questions i go through sometimes i'm like oh you know what do I care about, you know, Sally living in her in her office universe or whatever? And yep. what does it really have to do with me? And, um, you know, uh, I just want to know if you if you have that struggle yeah. or. No, well, yeah, I, I tell you a movie that I just saw recently that was just just knocked my socks off. Yeah, uh, was the writer. I don't know if you've seen it. Yet. No, no, no. Um, yeah. it's a new movie, new movie. OK, it, it uh, won an award at Cannes. Uh, and I, I think I'm pronouncing the filmmaker's name right. Uh, Chloe Zhao. Uh-huh. It's what, what's you're talking about truthfulness in cinema, yeah. Um, and and taking you to a world that that feels both foreign but also really relatable. It's it's set in bull riding South Dakota, and it's real people sort of playing fictionalized versions of uh, of their lives, and it's it's so powerful and and so just beautiful and relatable. And I think more than anything, 
for me, if I can achieve, uh, if I can achieve one thing in, in my work, it's just trying to, uh, trying to create that sense of relatability because a movie can be as fantastical as, as Dr. Strangelove, but, uh, you're only going to connect with an audience when someone can, uh, put themselves into that story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I would say that's probably the kind of the, the sort of overarching goal that I'm, that I'm approaching it with. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, if you talk a little bit now, the, the, uh, the films that you made, I believe you're just finishing up work yeah, on so I've, uh, my, Snake Eater. My, yeah. My background is, is in producing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, been producing for the last you know 10 12 years and just finished i'm in post-production now on uh my first film as a as a writer director uh it's a uh it's a noir thriller set in new york little contained thriller called snake eater that uh you know i took a chapter from sort of early coen brothers work i was a big fan of christopher nolan's memento mm. as well as you know the classics uh double indemnity maltese falcon yeah uh, you know, john houston billy wilder guys like that um and uh ryan johnson brick was another amazing film so the struggle is a is a independent uh filmmaker with uh, the budgetary constraints that you're always faced with is is how do you reconcile uh, the limitations of trying to realize your art with uh, with a, a story that you're passionate about that that you can actually do right? And so, as much as I might have wanted to do a big tentpole action movie, yeah. you know, uh, wasn't realistic. But uh, this was the movie that I was I was really excited to make, and by telling a, a film through a uh, sort of a singular point of view of this case in a, a uh, investigator, you can really uh, sink your teeth into the sort of the cinematic landscape of, of New York and use what uh, this city has to offer. So the film is a, a film noir set in um, New York City. Yeah. And in a, in it's a, in an uh, unnamed yeah. urban, unnamed urban okay. landscape, which, yeah. which we shot in New York City. Yeah. And then it, it follows the, it follows the case, a case. Yeah. Or, it's, it's a, yeah. um, it's an investigator looking into a life insurance claim and slowly peeling back and discovering that things aren't what they seem. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of Fargo, kind of. Uh, at least it conjures up the image oh, of Fargo. Such a great, reference. yeah, it's such a great, yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about an amazing film, yeah, just pitch perfect from beginning to end. And how deadpan, you know, they're in this this kind of uh, midwestern city, and how that there's this peel back the layers of uh, of yeah. of absurdity, well, and you know, I don't know. Yeah. Fargo was actually a really uh, it was a reference for me for this film, as well as just a a. a an influence for me mm. as a filmmaker. I think one of the things that I connected with so strongly with a movie like Fargo and filmmakers like Coen Brothers is their restraint. Mm. It's so easy. And you see this a lot with, with cinema today where with all the tools we have, uh, you can very easily let style uh, uh, take over for substance. Yeah. And when you watch a Coen Brothers film where everything feels so intentional, you've got, William H. Macy, and he's just been been turned down by his father-in-law, and he's walking to the parking lot, and it's just this beautiful, locked-off, single-shot wide of him walking to his car in this desolation. And there's very few cuts. There's no camera movement. It's just 
the power of of the performance and the and the writing that I think comes through with with all of their work. It's uh, it's really remarkable. I, I really respect them as as storytellers. Yeah, and speaking of like restraint and such, I worked on like Hitchcock and Orson Welles being like two of the the greatest uh, filmmakers, and they they show an incredible amount of um, kind of restraint and just showing allowing the camera to stay steady and and you know, with Citizen Kane and also with um well, pretty much any Hitchcock movie. Oh, yeah. Well, there's yeah, a, yeah. it's funny you mention that. There's actually one scene in uh in my film that North by Northwest, the uh-huh. the famous crop duster scene. Yeah. When you break that scene down, it's just a total masterclass in in suspense and and so it was sort of a a, a slight tip of the hat homage. Yeah. Uh, there's a uh, a scene in our film that uh I tried to achieve at least in in some you know small semblance of what hitchcock was able to do because it's it's a man in the middle of nowhere with uh just these these little elements that that come through and create this very suspenseful narrative it's hitchcock's hitchcock's hitchcock yeah did you ever read uh hitchcock by Truffaut? no no yeah uh, it's, it's a biography or yeah it's yeah. well it's a series of interviews that Truffaut did uh-huh with uh with hitchcock um and uh and then they published the the interviews and it's hitchcock later in his career just talking through all of his films and his process definitely a uh it's, it's an, a fascinating read and you just gotta get a sense of of the control that he had on the on the process cool and, cool you know the myths surrounding it yeah i understand uh a couple of days ago i saw on uh netflix they re- they released a new Orson Welles movie, which is very interesting for me. I, yeah, it's a do- the, the, the documentary, and on... also I think the the film itself. Oh, did they really? Yeah, they re- they they edited together the other oh, side wow. of the wind. I haven't got a chance to see the full thing. I saw a little bit of it, um, and then I was like, "All right, I'll watch it later." But what was uh, what was your takeaway? From, yeah, from I what just, you watched when I watched. I think it was really interesting how there seemed to be. Um, it's definitely not in the line of uh, Citizen Kane. It seems to be more experimental, mm-hmm. from what I can tell, and. Um, you know, Is it's it just John, great. John Houston, the John Houston, yeah, yeah, starring in it, yeah. Cool. yeah. And then, um, uh, yeah, it seems like he seems, seems like they, that he was going a little kind of letting loose a little bit. Yeah. So it's really great to 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 see a, a master at work. Well, you know, I mean, speaking of yeah. noir, a t- yeah. touch of evil. Yeah, Ooh, like that is so, and it's just so uh, uh, aggressively cutting edge. And, yeah, and his use of wide angle lenses, and it, everything is just dripping with atmosphere and sweat and it's he was just a rebel filmmaker from beginning to end it's yeah definitely you know he's definitely one of the greats obviously yeah i think i i have a clear memory i i kind of remember seeing touch of evil in college but i clearly remember blood simple i think by oh, the yeah. Cohen brothers that i remember pretty clearly i think uh as being like uh kind of uh you know as you're saying the film noir tradition and yep and doing variances on kind of experimenting a little bit more and that kind of a thing, and and playing with it, and and bringing in that authorial voice, uh, kind of the balancing act between bringing in your um your voice as well as serving the the traditions of the of the genre. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when you look at at least a lot of the filmmakers that I admire, the the noir genre seems to be a, a an entry point for a lot of these filmmakers. You have Blood Simple with Coen Brothers. You have Following with Christopher Nolan. Mm. Um, of course, uh, you know, and the list goes on and, and on. Uh, 
Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. You can, yeah. you can kind of put that in the in the noir category a little bit. Um, and, um, and so I don't know if that was a conscious decision on my part, but it's uh, it's a fun way to kind of start your career. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I always played with the idea of working in, I think detective stories are something that everyone's interested in. Like a lot of people at the library, working in the library, I know I ask uh, young people like, teens and, and and even younger uh you know they come to me and they want something to read or the parents want them to read something rather mm-hmm. and they're like and i'm like well what, what would you like yeah i want to start with some place where what would they be interested in and uh nine times out of ten they'd be like on oh, mystery i don't know yeah. like what do you, you know what do you typically recommend uh well i usually try to pitch it to what they what they're interested in but um what i end up doing is i end up showing them the most popular series for or most popular titles for that age group okay so um you know like uh um i can't think of anything out but you know it depends yeah. on the age so there's a wide variance but we have a bunch of series and such and all these series follow usually a same character okay through a, a number of um a number of books so like uh for the really young frog and toad is really popular okay about a friendship between a frog and a toad and they kind of go through adventures together and then going older, Amelia Bedelia is a popular series where about a kind of a um, a maid who uh, is kind of incompetent. I know she she takes things literally. I think is the uh, is the joke of the series where she's like constantly like kind of her mishaps, okay. mishap adventures and such. And then it goes up. There's always the, I think the people love it when there's a recurring character. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. Raymond Chandler for for me, I have yeah. got his stack of books on my on my bookshelf. But you know, Philip Marlowe is one of those 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 great sort of noir detectives that I keep coming back to again and again. Just fun reading, yeah. Style unto itself. And just to return to, um, we talked a little bit before the show about um, you know blurring truth and reality, mm-hmm. which is something I want to return to. Um, you know. Uh, we were talking a bit about Joaquin Phoenix and how, oh, yeah. yeah, how he did the "I'm Still Here" movie, and it was a, a real blurring between reality and um, and fiction because he had spent a, a long time kind of uh, going into interviews where the interviewer didn't know the game, and you know he had gone on David Letterman and he kind of pretended to act. He acted very strangely and provoking see, a reaction. Yeah, I didn't see it. Was was Letterman in on the the joke or? Was well, apparently he wasn't because he returned to Letterman later and he kind of apologized and oh, he okay. said, "Oh, you know, I was doing character." Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when I think about that kind of a thing, um, you know, provoking that kind of uh, provocateur aspect, you know, and how cinema and even like in college, I know, like a lot of times. Uh, you know, when we did cinema, we did uh, drama, rather, we did theater, people would always go to the breaking the third wall, breaking, you know, trying to, um, you know, have an audience member come in and, and be like, oh, you know, and disrupting the th- mm-hmm. disrupting the, the facade of the drama and kind of like a, you know, Brecht had that epic theater idea and sure. disrupting the, the facade and such. Yeah. So if you have any comments about like just general, like how. You know, so where where's cinema going now, and how can we kind of? Uh, what do you think about all these different screens and and ways in which we interface with cinema? You know, yeah. I mean, I think I'm pretty traditional in that. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of there's a lot of buzziness right now mm. regarding how we are going to consume storytelling in the future. 
virtual reality, augmented reality, mm. uh, 360 viewing, all, all these types of things. And I think that cinema and, and how, we, how we view it, I don't see it changing much in the foreseeable future. I think over the last hundred years, there has been a, a, a language of cinema that has been written in terms of editing. So right off the bat there, I, I don't see how, and I could be completely wrong, we'll see, but how something like virtual reality, where you're locked into a, a sort of singular view without the ability of, of cutting, mm. is, is uh, I don't know, I think you, you lose some of the, the impact. Yeah. I remember I, I saw when the New York Times did, they they sent out their cardboard VR glasses and you put in your iPhone and there was a, uh, a mini car commercial. It was, a, I think, a diamond heist. And you're you're along for the ride and it was billed as this very sort of a visceral, you're just right there with the robbers. And, and I remember watching it and you're in the mini car and then you get to the robbery and I remember feeling bored. Mm. And I think part of that was my expectation of wanting to get in on the action. And and instead, I was sitting there as kind of a passive viewer mm. instead of what cinema can do, which is make you an active participant. Uh, and also, I think that the way that we view the world is more akin to the way films are edited than the way we say experience a play in the theater mm. because the idea of of experiencing our reality through wide shots medium shots close-ups is is i think accurate to the way when you're walking into a subway car for example and you assess your surroundings you see the person sitting there you look at what's in their hand that is 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 very uh i think familiar to us and one of the reasons why I think editing, which on its face shouldn't work, is so effective in eliciting emotion and, and drawing us into the story. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think I definitely experienced that as well, that, you know, where we place our attention is really where the focus of the shot is. That, you know, we're kind of, as you're saying, you know, we go through life, we have, you know, this kind of wide scope of vision, but we're really placing our attention on a specific area and we're kind of zooming in in a way that kind of like directing our attention towards a specific area and then we're kind of at times we're kind of cutting out things or we're kind of we're thinking about something else absorbed in thought and then we're kind of editing almost in our own mind you know it's a that's a very interesting way of thinking about it i i definitely resonate with that yeah yeah it's, yeah and it's it's really fascinating when you look at the the history of of cinema and and how many years it took filmmakers to realize that a cut uh, can actually work because mm. the original approach of course was the proscenium arch and you place the camera and then you view the action through sort of the seat of the theater so to speak and when you see the filmmakers in the in the early teens start to to harness the power of of cinematic editing it's 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 pretty amazing and and uh and then of course leading into uh the language that we that we use today and i mean it's held up for a hundred years, like I said, so uh, I, I just don't see that changing too too fundamentally. Yeah, and there... in fact, uh, sorry to interrupt, but you know, I think also when people talk about the industry, right? Mm. Right now, we've got the 
the golden age of television, Netflix and Amazon, mm. and everyone's programming and people are saying the end of cinema. And But to me, they're, they're, they're no different. Whether I view a movie in my house on a 50-inch flat screen TV or see it in the theater, of course, I, I love the theater and I love going to the theater, but the the actual storytelling is mm. no different. And I think sometimes we confuse uh, the way in which the story is presented with uh, the story itself. Mm. Uh, no different than reading a novel on a Kindle or on a paperback book. Nobody's talking about the end of, of novel yeah. writing and things like that. Yeah. But for some reason, I think we sometimes confuse the experience of going to the theater with the act of of storytelling which which are different things exactly exactly and i think that there has been a a slight progression uh, a kind of uh, we're thinking about like the evolution of consciousness as well as uh, an evolution of the way in which stories are told you know we go back to silent cinema where we had like um you know place cards and we had like little music and then and how like storytelling has changed also in regards to music you know heightening um in the soundtrack and and then, like, when you look at, I'm kind of using diverse examples, yeah, but also in sitcoms, how they used to have the laugh track, and then mm -hmm. that finally, I'm gratefully ended, you know, and, and how, uh, let's focus a little bit on the laugh track and how, uh, for a moment, um, how, you know, back in the day in, in, in these uh, sitcoms, they, they'd have people laughing, and then, you know, then they ended that, and what do you think about, kind of, what do you think about that? I don't know. No, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I've, I've actually thought about that, you know, in terms of, uh, waves of of audience taste yeah and clearly in the 80s the the audiences came to expect that or maybe the studios imposed that on the audiences mm. who know um and you know if we're talking about uh sort of trends of course right now in cinema it's it's the the sort of the age of the superhero yeah uh, and every every summer i mean throughout the year now it's it's there's a uh a, a myriad of choices when it comes to which comic book hero you want to watch on the big screen. Um, and audiences are really connecting with that. It's not, I never sort of grew up in that world. I was never a big comic book guy. So it's something that oftentimes isn't necessarily my taste. Mm. Um, but if, if the history of cinema has shown us anything, it's that, uh, that wave will eventually pass and something new will, will take its place. What that is, I, I'm not, not entirely sure. As a filmmaker, I love the cinema of the 70s, uh, late 60s, 70s, as, as most of us do when you look at movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider, uh, Godfather. And I think the common thread with all of those films is that the filmmakers were, were given free reign. Mm. And... I think, optimistically, if there's a trend that ultimately supplants the sort of the superhero genre, it's it's one in which filmmakers are given sort of free reign to to tell stories that are that are personal to them. Because yeah. I think you can make an amazing superhero film. I look at Christopher Nolan's Batman series as a, an amazing example of that. Um, but there's also a level of personal personalization and and reality that that it's hard to achieve when you're when you're wrapping your story in that kind of world. So yeah, I think definitely I agree that um, with the superhero and all the fantasy genre in general, that 
getting too lost for me at least as a viewer getting too lost into the intricacies of an alternate reality is not as compelling as when you get to the truth of you know the reality that we exist in so you know for example using two two examples with star wars um how you know they, they get bogged down by intergalactical politics and whether or not that's compelling for me as a listener as a viewer sometimes it can be mm-hmm. uh, potentially um but I, I found that the way it's done is not as compelling as, you know, the more down-to-earth stories of the people. Mm-hmm. And also Logan is a great example oh, of a movie. Such uh, a good movie. Yeah, such a great oh. movie and how they really got to the, the, the human truth, you right. know, of, of, uh, in, within this genre, uh, pushing to, towards um, real humanity, you know, in that. And oh. you wouldn't expect that out of a comic movie, I think. I think we've... But that's something that's very, yeah. Yeah, no, Logan was, that just, it blew me away. It was mm. such a well-made film. Mm-hmm. Definitely the exception. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And and it takes a, a filmmaker uh, with that kind of uh, clout and, and backbone to really get it done. Um, yeah. but, kind of vision, a vision for something that they can, that they have the, that the studio is allowing them to do is kind of this perfect yeah. storm of well, having the vision. And, also, and, yeah. and I think having the vision and then having the support of the star, mm. you know, without yeah. Hugh Jackman saying, yeah. this is the movie. If you want me to be Wolverine, this yeah. is the story we're going to tell. Yeah. Uh, that movie doesn't get made. So yeah. you, know, you got to give a lot of credit uh, both to uh, it was James Mangold that directed that. I, I, I can't I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Uh, both. It's uh fantastic film so i would say that to me was one of my favorite movies the last year yeah and listeners know that uh, and you also we spoke a little bit about this before that you know i'm very interested in poetry and poetic devices and and how sometimes cinema there's a convergence you know i think that even poetry has evolved over the years you know from very structured you know um form to now in contemporary poetry going into personal going into since the confessional poets of sylvia plath going into like real raw emotions and raw um, experiences of, of the individual poet and how the parallels with the film journey, you know, how um, film went from highly structured genre and, and, uh, and highly structured, um, you know, expectations of the audience. And then slowly going into more of these artistic visions yeah. and in poetry too, and, and how uh, disrupting the narrative uh, in a, in a controlled or very uh, good way, you know, kind of using narrative as a, as a, hook and then bringing it into this disruptive thing um you know like darren aronofsky is a good example of someone a filmmaker who you know plays with um you know these devices in order to um bring about uh psychological um states of mind and of the characters and such and uh and yeah if you think about some experimental films and experimental i mean i think um i'm going back now and there's a, a lot of Terrence Malick films that I haven't seen. Yeah. So I've, I've gone back recently um, and started watching them. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, I saw Tree of Life in the theater, but yeah. I just finished watching The Thin Red Line. Yeah. And what you're saying about this blend of cinema and, and poetry and his use specifically of voiceover coupled with image. It's a it's in some ways it's it's the blend of, of poetry and cinema and creating mm. this almost a new form of expression. It's it's very beautiful and very hard to, to pull off. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, of course, is a filmmaker that has been emulated and, and copied and to varying degrees of success. But when you watch a movie like Thin Red Line or, or, or Tree of Life, it's, yeah. I mean, wow, it's the power of the medium and what you can achieve when done when done well is you know very inspiring to me. 
Yeah. Uh, also, uh, just share a moment that happened to me. Uh, I went to a concert um, of Portugal the Man um, at uh, Forest Hill Stadium, and they started out with uh, uh, a singer or a group. Uh, I don't even really remember. It was like an opening act, and they were doing uh, kind of a performance art, you okay. might call it. And you know, the audience, some of the audience members were responding like. Get to the music, you know, like play a song, you know. Sure. And it was kind of upsetting for me because I was like, oh, you know, it's just the opening act. They take you a few minutes to to dance around, do something. Yep. It was it was engaging for yeah. me, but I'm I'm very much schooled in this kind of thing. And and uh-huh. you know, I guess like some people are like, just play a song, you know. I don't know. Like and the reaction to audiences, well, I mean, the experimentation, was, yeah. That exact thing when Tree of Life came out, yeah. And uh, there was that whole section in the middle when you're sort of the the creation of the cosmos. Uh, <laughs> and I remember talking to some friends, and they they said, "Wow, you know, it was a good movie, but come on, yeah. what was going on in the middle?" And I said, no, that's the point. Yeah, it's so beautiful, and you just have to let like give in to what he's trying to do. And, yeah, you know, it's transcendent, and yeah. but uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's. Every person has a it's a beautiful thing about art, right? Yeah, it's really every, provokes. Yeah, yeah everybody really provokes, has their yeah. own uh, their own take and their own tastes, and it's always it's fun for me as a as a cinephile when when there's a movie that I love, and then I talk to a friend whose opinions I really respect, uh, and he or she will say, "Ah, oh, that movie's terrible." Yeah, like, how could you know? And it, and it sparks conversation and is uh, just. <clears throat> You know, it's it's that's what makes the, the movie going fun. It's not just the experience; it's the it's the consumption of it afterwards. Mm, and re- remembering two thousand one, a space odyssey, and how that was like. Uh, and now we've kind of uh, you know just remembering just how he did that, how it, yeah. it, the parallel between that and yeah. Tree of Life, and how he's able to achieve such a an amazing vision. Uh, yeah, well, you know. 2001's a film that I'm I'm still dying to see on the big screen. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. I've, and I, I going back to our conversation about theater versus home entertainment. Mm. I do think there is something that is lost with certain films not seeing it on the big screen. Yeah. That um that uh, I will always go to the theater for. And it's not just the big action sort of Michael Bay movies that people oftentimes say you got to see in the theater. It's uh, the Lawrence of Arabia. It's those big uh, epic stories. It's the ability to see a close-up it on a 20-foot screen that that just throws that emotion across the audience. And then you experience it with a hundred other people and you know you cry together, you laugh together. It's... Uh, yeah, there's something almost sacred about that yeah. communal community experience of going into a cinema in a darkened area and and watching this shared experience with your community. And uh, the the greatest thing is when you go for me at least when you go opening night to a highly anticipated movie oh, and the buzz and, the the buzz, the theater, and yeah. yeah, everyone's so excited and it's just a really great way to connect with your community. I think oh, you know. Yeah. No, and I, the reactions, I, that when they laugh very loudly or when they have a good yep. reaction, yeah. I drive my wife crazy because I, I'm, I'm, I absolutely have to get the best seat in the theater. Yeah. And so I'll show up at the theater an hour, hour and a half early. And I'm that guy when you walk by the AMC Cineplex, it's yeah. just like standing in the queue with nobody else in the line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just because 
that experience is so intoxicating to me. A, a great seat in a full theater, opening night, uh, Dunkirk. I remember seeing Dunkirk, uh, uh, what was it, last year? Yeah. And and I had a you know, great seat. I was in Lincoln Center. And wow, it was just just amazing. And you know, it's a, it's a I don't, experience that's, that's hard to replicate. Yeah, I, it wasn't that long ago that... Um... You know, I remember when, because uh, now, nowadays, you know, I think that a lot of these cinemas are starting to get in line with, you know, being able to select your seat and yep. and reserve a Which seat. I so I love because yeah, it takes all the anxiety, anxiety out, out of, of it. my experience. But it wasn't long ago, in 2000, when um, uh, the first episode one came out, mm-hmm. uh, my our good friend, mutual friend Al and I went to uh, uh, Union Square and we stayed up all night to get tickets to um the showing and uh you know we waited online all night yep and then we got tickets we went in and 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 the community experience was very interesting not to get into the the disappointment that when we end up being but uh (laughs) you know like but at the same time that that community like was very built up yeah yeah, absolutely uh same experience for me seeing dark knight Mm. it was just like i think we saw the midnight showing the night of the movie and everybody's waiting in line amped up and that that Opening bank high scene, yeah. you meet the Joker for the first time, and you could just hear a pin drop in the room. It was just, you know, amazing. But what do you think of now, speaking of all this rebooting, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about, and how, you know, people are very frustrated in some level that we're, we're so we're telling the, we're rebooting movies so quickly, and it seems like, especially superhero movies are very chronic with this, yeah. that we have, feel like we're treading over the same territory. I mean, I guess there's some case to be made about if they're they have something to say instead of just rehashing stuff. I mean, if they have something unique to tell about it, but I do feel a little frustrated with that, yeah, right? Do you no, feel I, mean, like, yeah. I, I think, um, and I think the the business side of filmmaking uh, has been victim of this since the very beginning, which is trying to trying to guarantee re- returns and. Mm. and figuring out ways to mitigate one's risk on film yeah. and sequels and reboots and everything are, are I think a bright byproduct of that. Um, and I think Hollywood's been doing it since the, since the beginning. Uh, there are periods, like I mentioned in the, in the late sixties and seventies where the, the traditional ways of, of Hollywood filmmaking weren't working and weren't bringing in money. And mm. that's when they gave the reins over to the filmmakers. So uh, I don't see this trend ceasing until the box office uh, starts to starts to diminish. And then if studios can't figure it out. Then uh, they'll turn to sort of alternative means. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's the idea of reboots and sequels has been done both really well and, and not so well. Mm. Um. Yeah, and it's, I just I don't know the answer to that one. Yeah, it's tough because like you know it seems like we feel like there's so I think within the increased marketplace within this diverse marketplace we want to be able to be um, kind of you know not feel now if there's less of an obligation sure there's less on the on the part of the listener on the part of the viewer for a consumer uh, for us to you know go to uh, the, the only movie coming out this year kind of thing or the major movie coming out this year we have so many different choices. And in that crowded marketplace, I think there's this. There could be an opportunity there for real 
art to emerge or real like visions to emerge. Well, yeah. I mean, I tell you, like you look at, I mean, Netflix is releasing dozens and dozens mm. of movies and there's some, for me, the, the movies I'm most excited about this fall are, are Netflix movies. Yeah. You look at uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which uh-huh. is a Netflix movie. I think it's getting a theatrical release, but that is a Netflix movie. Uh, the new Coen brothers, it's uh, Buster Scruggs is a Netflix movie. Uh, Jeremy Solnier is a Brooklyn filmmaker uh, and actually someone who's, who's really influenced me. Blue Ruin, his his uh, film from a few years ago, just it was was absolutely amazing. Uh, Hold the Dark was his film that just came out on Netflix. So, so I have a lot of optimism and a lot of mm. faith that as a right now as an independent filmmaker that there will continue to be channels and avenues for my work to get out there. Yeah, and frankly, whether it's Netflix or some big studio, as long as my films can connect with an audience, I'm a happy man. Yeah, and, um, and I don't see that changing. So yeah, so I'm feeling good about it. One thing that's interesting, um, I was looking through like uh, some various uh, books in the library and such, and the phrase "all art is propaganda" came up to me hmm. that. Uh, that I'm not sure. Actually, I've, I checked it out the book by George Orwell. Okay, I haven't gotten a chance to read all the essays, but sure. uh, just that one phrase it seems to speak volumes. That you know, there's there's such a tradition of controlling the narrative and 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 having it feed into kind of the what preconceived notions about what we should be thinking and how we should be feeling and and you know being able to explore and experiment is I think un- the unknown. Right. You know, I, I talk a little bit about like how, how you, what you think about that. You know, I, take I, out I, that. I think the the biggest challenge for any filmmaker, and I touched on this a little bit at the beginning, is unlike most other forms of art, there is a built-in element of commerce that comes mm. with it. Because to make a movie, a low-budget film is, a, I should say, a micro-budget. Yeah, is, is a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other art form where someone is considered a micro budget <laughs> and they're spending $300,000 to see their mm. their product on the on the big screen and there's been a lot of a lot of buzz lately about the democratization of filmmaking mm. and anybody can do it and that's just simply not true anybody can do it but the barriers of entry which come in the form of equipment crew post-production, delivery, all these elements still cost money. Mm. Um, And if it's not money, it's time. And so I think the great misnomer to that concept is, yes, anybody can make a movie and anyone can do it all themselves, but not everybody has the ability to take nine months to a year not working to devote full time to make a movie. So yes, you can make a movie for $10,000, but... Are you that? Are you going to not work for the year in order to make that ten thousand dollars movie? So it's still there's all these things that I think are, are tricky in a way that um, perhaps writing a novel or, or painting a painting uh, are a more f- uh, pure form of expression. Mm. And I think that's one thing that is interesting for me as a filmmaker is how to how to uh, balance the two. Yeah, because as much as uh, an investor wants to see art on the screen yeah they also want to get money back in the bank so yeah so how do you balance those two yeah definitely it's a balancing act and i think it's uh unfortunate that 
so many of these art forms are are slave to commercialism and and the need to appease people but whether or not i don't know it just feels like it's frustrating and um you know as we start to wind down i want to say that uh sure. just give a plug to radio for brooklyn one of the few forums of community uh radio where people can don't have to be slave to commercials don't have to be slave to um you know buying years we, we're here to share our stories and you know, people can uh, find out more about readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate to, um, uh, because we are a free and open platform to our community of promoting media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps to, us to continue to stay on air. So please support community independent radio by pledging whatever you can afford, all contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. And speaking of the the future of um of all these forums of art, Ready for Brooklyn is proud to announce to be launching an after school program for local teenagers in 2019 to learn media literacy through media making using a hands on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or even donating to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org/slash um after school and once again all donations are tax deductible um we have just a reminder about the newsletter that you can find out more about our new programming upcoming rfb events at readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter and uh if you're listening on your computer you can free yourself with the apps uh on the iphone and android by going to the respective um stores so yeah so i mean i think it's really great to have a community feeling to build communities, yeah. micro communities, and even larger communities in our in our thing in our uh, world. Absolutely, yeah. you know, and and I I think especially here in <clears throat> Brooklyn, which has had a, a really profound influence for me as a filmmaker. Without that, the community, without the the organizations that I've discovered over the six seven years that I've lived here, it's been um it's been an amazing uh, transformation for me. So. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm all about Brooklyn community. Great, great. And um yeah, speaking of like when we think about as as we mold people, uh, the young youth and the and people coming in, you know, we're trying to give them the message that their voice matters and that uh they they can contribute to this conversation, that everyone should contribute to the conversation. They shouldn't feel silenced. You know, I think that uh one of the major chronic things is is this kind of otherizing and silencing of people that Oh, and, and, and money and such, as you're talking about, the structures of money have a lot to do with that, economic freedom. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I had a really interesting experience. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was shooting a, a commercial, and uh, two little girls came up. They were, geez, I don't know, eight, ten years old. And they said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, oh, we're... No, they, they came up and they said, are you filming a YouTube video? And this is like a big commercial set. <laughs> We said, no, you know, we're, we're doing a commercial. And they said, uh, and they turned around disappointed and walked away. And I realized the power uh. of, of, of YouTube and of this, uh, all these social media platforms in um, sort of this next generation. So we'll see how that manifests itself in, in cinema and storytelling. But, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a medium I didn't grow up with. Yeah. Um, and while I enjoy watching YouTube videos, I think the the youth consume that in a very different way than than I do. So uh we'll see we'll see how that that appears when they start making films in uh you know the coming future. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about how um you know we
we grew up in a specific modality and how people are, are to the changing terrain. So, yeah, and as we wrap up, I'm going to be playing a song. Uh, just the different music comes up to me over the over the week or over the time. Uh, and a race rewind came up by the Cardigans. I don't know. This is just something that was cool. that it just came up for me, and I hope people enjoy listening. So uh, uh, we'll sign off now. Uh, this is Radio Free Brooklyn, the Truth to Power Show. Thank you so much, Tor. Thank you. Vita. Thank you. Thank you.